May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is a great joy to be here with you all this morning. I've had uh, many times to reflect on the last time that I, my wife, Liza, and I were here was 10 years ago. And at that point, I uh, was neither a confirmed Episcopalian nor had any uh, direct uh, ideas about going to seminary. And this church and its people had a, as we would say, clarifying effect on my life in a very profound way. So here I am 10 years later. Uh, having been in no small way a fruit of the ministry here at uh, the Cathedral of the Advent. And I'm very thankful for that because over the past 10 years, through Trinity uh, Seminary and then through uh, studies in Berlin and then to a curacy in Vienna and now to an Episcopal church in, uh, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, you have all been as much of a sending parish to me as I ever could have had. And so it is one of the great honors of my life to be standing here, to uh, be with you all, and to be giving you this, uh, this 45-minute sermon today. So, uh, <laughs> no, don't worry, I have a timer up here because I know in good Episcopal Church fashion there is a trap door at 20 minutes that will uh, suck me down <laughs> into, the, into the basement. <laughs> So I have been, I must say, um, as recently uh, called rector of St. Francis in the Fields, very excited about your news here as well. And I feel very much in tune with the Apostle Paul, who in the book of Thessalonians, remember, he says, "We, we give thanks to our God for you with every remembrance of you because of your faith that you have had and that you have shown. And I feel uh, this is not just a, uh, a words on a page for me anymore. This is something that is taking place and rooted in my own life in a very dramatic way. So praise God for you all here. Now, over the past year, I have had the opportunity to teach a class on Romans to about, um, well, there are about 200 people signed up for it on Tuesday mornings. And it's given me this uh, amazing opportunity to work through some of these great theological themes that are near and dear to my heart. These themes about justification by faith alone and the distinction between law and gospel and simo justus et peccator and these wonderful phrases that when I start to talk about them and I get all excited, I can tell that people are actually starting to fall asleep. This is really what's taking place is that the eyes are glazing over and they say, um, that sounds very interesting. And then they will, uh, if I don't, if I don't stop them, they will hit the ground. And so I, I had this experience actually uh, many times when trying to describe my, uh, the part of the thesis that I was working on for many years. Because they say, what are you writing on, J.D.? And I'd be like, you're never going to believe it. The most exciting thing in the world. Justification by faith alone. The distinction between law and gospel. Seeing we use as epicator. And they say, um, that sounds really, really interesting. Uh, to, um, and, and I could see that this sort of cloud of, of dubious unknowing was just sort of beginning to, to form. And so I say, you know, you know um, about how the history of the Reformation and about how the gospel was rediscovered and about how preaching became the, one of the great sacraments of our church. You know, and they say, no, I'm not sure. And then I'd finally say, well, I'm writing about Jesus. And they say, oh, well, why didn't you say so? I can't wait to read that. That sounds like a, a real a real winner. Um, and so over the past year, I've had the opportunity to dive into some of these ideas in a more directed way. And I think 
I'm almost at the point, after having done Tuesdays now for a year, where some people are actually beginning to share my excitement for these ideas. And so I find it to be a great uh, sort of victory, both with you know, sort of validating the past 10 years of my life, but, but that notwithstanding, it's also beginning to dawn on people's hearts and minds why the gospel is such good news. And that is something that brings me to tears, just to think there would be one more person in my sphere of influence who would come to a situation where they would say, this is not only something that I believe, but it has in fact changed my life. And so the verse I chose to talk about today is one of the ones that I introduced the entire class with, which is from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I used this verse at the very beginning of my class on Romans because I wanted them to see how long it was going to take us to get to, as it were, the application section of the book. Because, therefore... In view of God's mercies, go, do, act, be, live, love, life, whatever you would like to do, but never outside of the light of God's mercies. And God's mercies, at least according to the Apostle Paul, take about 12 complicated chapters to begin to unfold and unravel and unpack so that, therefore, you will now see In view of God's mercies, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. This is why I told them from the beginning what was going to happen is we were going to have this sort of seesaw between what we would understand to be the diagnosis of the human condition and then ultimately the the sort of prescription of the human condition. What we would say theologically as the anthropology of people And then the soteriology of Jesus. I mean, these are terms that basically mean what's wrong with us and why did Jesus come? This is essentially how we would translate that. And it's very important to the Apostle Paul, as we see, because these general categories of God and humans have taken on a very specific uh, flavor in that it is no longer generalized God and generalized humanity. But in fact, the justifying, saving God, and the sinful, ungodly humanity. And in those adjectives, in those descriptors, we find the heart of the gospel. Because Paul takes 12 chapters to say, you now no longer have any ability to say who our God is. Because our God is the God who saves We are, by definition, then, those who are in need of saving. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, present yourself. So what we've done, time and time again, is vacillate between Genesis and Romans, because there is a very uh, clear and descriptive uh, um, account of what we'd understand as the, the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis, and then Paul is sort of unpacking that both expressly in chapters 5 and 6, but also in, in, in general throughout the entire book of Romans. 
And I'm very sympathetic to this, this idea that if we do not appreciate the depth of the human condition, well, then we will not also then appreciate the heights of God's saving work. And I ran across a quote that uh, helped me um, buttress this point the other day from a uh, short story by a man named uh, Wilhelm von Kleist, who wrote a book that was entitled, a short story called On the Marionette Theater. And he says this as, as part of this uh, the story. He says, it seemed, this is a discussion was going on, he said, as he took a pinch of snuff, that I hadn't read the third chapter of the book of Genesis with sufficient attention. If a man wasn't familiar with that initial period of all human development, it would be difficult to have a fruitful discussion with him about later developments and even more difficult to talk about the ultimate situation. Now, for those of you who don't uh, remember, just to refresh all of our minds, the situation that he is talking about is the existence of of a uh, perfected relational um, uh, reality in the Garden of Eden where God was known as the creator and his creatures were in communion with him. And then, what does it say? That they were tempted by the tempter to ask and wonder, did God really say? Did God really say you should not eat of this tree? Did God really say that you uh, that you uh, if you eat of it you will die? Don't trust God. God just doesn't want you to do this. Trust me. And so we see the results of that in Genesis three eight when they said and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God's response to that was, who told you you were naked? Who told you now that you were this person? How have you come into this situation where you no longer hear my voice as the definitive answer. You no longer see me as the fount of life. You no longer have me as the comfort for your existence. Who told you you were naked? And you see the connection here, the one that Luther uh, saw so clearly, but we see in the Apostle Paul's writings through Romans that the sins within which we find ourselves, of which we repent, the things done and left undone, well, these are important to be sure. But they flow from a deeper root of sin, which is grounded in the unbelief that there is a God from whom we have received our life and being. And so, commenting on this passage, Luther would say, once the question, did God really say, once that question was allowed for, all manner of sins ensued. But the root was, is there actually a God? Did we have any recourse in this world to an ultimate hope? Is there actually a ground of our being, as Heidegger would say? Well, come to think of it, I'm not really sure. So in light of that severing from God and his uh, life-giving spirit, we then are forced to create meaning, create uh, gods and kingdoms and uh, uh, worlds of our own that we find in conflict with each other 
and we are left with no recourse except to uh, hire and retain ever-increasing numbers of lawyers to protect our kingdoms from others. And this is what the world says. This is what the Bible describes as a world under sin and Jesus himself saying, I did not come to judge this world because it's already under judgment. This is why it is wonderful to be a part of this preaching series and to stand in this pulpit, among any pulpit, that has ever had the audacity to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because when he came into the world, and unlike us, was faithful to the end, who even in the midst of his turmoil, saying, God, take this cup from me, he nevertheless says, not my will, but thine, By his death and resurrection, we have now been given unequivocal proof and a sermon that will never stop being preached, that this is your God. Has God actually said? Yes. Where is your God? He is on a cross 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem and was raised for our justification. How is God operative in the world? He is the one leading through his cross, his suffering, and his death to a final resurrection. Our fears, our doubts, our unbelief, and our insecurities have now been answered once and for all. And with the centurion, the centurion who saw Jesus being crucified, we can stand and say, surely, surely this is the Son of God. This is why the preaching of Jesus, in the preaching of Jesus, the world is actually rectified by faith. Because the unfaith that said, maybe God hasn't spoken, maybe there is no meaning, maybe I have not been created, maybe I must, in fact, uh, create myself, well, by faith, those are silenced. And in their place becomes worship becomes proclamation, becomes confession and conviction and courage to stand for the truth that God has, in fact, said. And so we begin to use metaphors and and, and language that we were given in the Bible about what this this, uh, living faith looks like by talking about being born again or having been uh, crucified and risen with Christ or having been saved or having been uh, eyes open or ears unstopped or chains loosed. And we begin to be people who walk in light of God's revealed suffering and saving Son. Because fundamentally, we are those who hear. We are those who hear from God through the cacophony of life, his voice calling out to us. We are the ones who, in the midst of the questions about God's, uh, did God really say, has God really spoken, where now is your God? In the midst of that, we are those who hear the voice of Jesus because we have been given ears. And he is the one, to be sure, who is calling us from the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. But nevertheless, still preaching, 
still working through what the Apostle Paul would say, the foolishness of what we preach to change people's hearts, to give the deaf ears, to give sight to the blind, to save people. And so we stand once again in the great cloud of witnesses from the very first preacher who stood and said, this man, Jesus Christ, who you have crucified, has come back, repent and believe. And they preached and they preached And they preached, and here we are. And we are these people, those who have ears, those who Jesus has been given, has given ears to hear, who have heard his words to a lost and hurting world, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.